So page uh, 1014, those are the words that we've just heard um, from God's word. Marriage and divorce and discipleship then. Um, A topic that is controversial and sensitive, I'm fully aware. Uh, Controversial because we live in a day and a place where divorce is normal and, and accepted and because the nature of marriage has been and continues to be uh, challenged and uh, redefined. Sensitive, of course, because it's very real. It's very real, isn't it? And I I suspect few of us are immune from the pain and hurt that come from marriage breakdowns, divorce, and the like. Some of us know it very keenly indeed. Many of us have felt its effects among our family and friends. So controversial and sensitive. So you might ask, well, why are we looking at it on a Sunday morning uh, together? Well, uh, because as we go through Mark's gospel, uh, I hope you can see that this is not a passage that has been, uh, for want of a better expression, jerry-picked. Because, you know, last week we looked at the previous passage and (laughs) next week we'll be looking at the next one. And so today we come to Jesus' words uh, about discipleship uh, in this area, uh, in marriage and divorce, and remarriage. It's the Lord speaking, and so we need to look at it. Uh, But I I want you equally to hear that the Lord Jesus does not purpose this morning, and I'm convinced about this, the Lord Jesus does not purpose this morning that anyone goes away from here uh, burdened with stigma, or shame, or feeling under condemnation. Jesus wants us to go from here, whatever our history, embraced, equipped, enabled to go forward in joyful service of him. To go forward. No one, and we must hear this, no one is a second-class Christian. There is no, that's an empty set. There is no such category. Because the one who came from the Father, full of grace and truth, is as compassionate as he is commanding, He stands ready and able to show mercy, to repair every sinful heart and every broken heart. And in him is sufficient grace for us all as we come to him and entrust ourselves to him, to love him, to live for him, and to serve him. That's his goal. That's my goal in terms of this message this morning. And because we're all broken, including in this area, Yet in Christ we're children of God and brothers and sisters together. I hope and pray that this will perhaps stimulate an opportunity for us to show that brotherly and sisterly love towards one another as we bear with one another's burdens, as we seek to minister to one another in God's grace. And as you know that you can come, not just to myself and Richard, although we'd be very happy to speak to you afterwards or indeed through the week, but also to one another, that we can be open and honest, and find grace together uh, in Christ. Let me pray before we look at these words together. Our Father, by the same Spirit that inspired these words, we pray that you would give us understanding, that our ears and our minds would be attentive. But most of all, Lord, we pray that you would work on our hearts, to make them soft. 
to make them soft towards Jesus' words, to make them soft towards him and serving him and his people, now and always. Amen. So verse 1 then of chapter 10, Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. So uh, multiple times, most of you will recall this from these previous chapters, verses eight, uh, chapters 8 and 9, that, that uh, Jesus has told his followers many times that he is heading up to Jerusalem to, uh, to suffer and to die. He's told them that. And now he's closing in. He's about, I don't know, 20 miles uh, away. And some religious leaders come sliding into the crowd. You see that verse 2. Some Pharisees come and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? To give you an idea how dangerous this question is for Jesus, think about it. He's in Herod's territory as he crosses the Jordan. He's in the place where John the Baptist went and uh, called people to repentance and baptized many, and, if you remember, lost his head. And do you remember why he lost his head? Because he challenged Herod about how he'd divorced his own wife and taken the wife of his brother. Do you remember? So for Jesus to, to head here, in a place where Herod has the influence, and the Pharisees want his head anyway, they're asking him a question designed to trap him so that what Herod has done to John, maybe he'll do to Jesus to do away with him and allow the Pharisees to have free sway. So here's the trap. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? It seems like a, a fairly simple question, but it is a trap. And Jesus replies, verse 3, what did Moses command you? And they come back, verse 4, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her uh, away. Now here is uh, Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 1. The Pharisees are right. This is what the law of Moses says. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house. And it goes on, if we read it in its context, to say that in a situation where essentially a, a woman goes from one man to another. A man cannot go back and sort of remarry his first wife, the one that he first divorced. It's actually a law of protection. It's a law of protection so that a woman is not just passed around among men like a football. It's a law of protection and a good law. But what might a man consider indecent about his wife? And this is where the Pharisees, experts at twisting and turning around with God's words, would find for themselves, surprise, surprise, license to do pretty much whatever they wanted. So one Pharisee might think, well, indecent, that means serious sexual misconduct. Somebody else might just think, well, you know what, she's not as attractive as she used to be to me, not as satisfying, not as enjoyable to be with. It's actually quite 21st century, really, isn't it, when you think about it? But let's just step back from that for a moment. Uh, these encounters come, as we've been hearing already this morning, when looking at another part of chapter 10, these are all things that have to do with discipleship. 
Remember, Jesus said, I'm going to go and suffer and die, and that anyone who would follow me must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And so what Jesus says here is what it looks like to have him as the Lord of our lives. We have to come and receive these words and entrust ourselves to him, just like we would with any other of the words here in these chapters. His teaching here strikes at the core of our loves and our loyalties. It strikes and defines and determines the direction and detail of our lives. What did mo- And here, here is a dynamic that I think is so 21st century. And I know it goes on in my heart all the time. Notice the question that Jesus asks in verse 3 and the subtle difference in the question that the Pharisees are answering in verse 4. But Jesus says, verse 3, what did Moses command you? Verse 4, they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send him away. Do you see the subtle distinction? I do this all the time, so do you. We focus on what we're allowed to do rather than on what we're supposed to do. We love to take that tack, don't we? What can I push it to its extreme? What can I get away with and still be kosher? How far can I stretch this? Can I find someone somewhere who will tell me or in their book or whatever, tell me, claiming to be a Christian, that this kind of behavior is okay. Because if I can, then I'm within the the spectrum of opinion that's acceptable, and therefore I can do this. And we're dying to find that loophole, that, that place where someone says, this is okay, this is fine. And what we do when we do that is we say, well, the voice of Jesus just a voice among many. If, if I come to Jesus' words, I find that he is endorsing my, 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 my choices, my desires, my lifestyle, then all well and good. Great. Happy Jesus. Happy days. But if I come to the word of God and I find that, that it appears that Jesus is not on my side with this one, that he's not endorsing what I'm thinking, desiring, and doing, then, well, I'll do what the Pharisees are doing. I'll, I'll, I'll do away with him, essentially. I'll put him to one side, his words, and I'll, I'll take other words and privilege other voices over his. But you see, if we're reading Mark and his gospel honestly, we can't do that, can we? Here's the thing. Will I come to Jesus' teaching on my terms to suit my story, my history, my agenda? Or will I do what the Father has told me to do? Back in verse 9. This is my Son whom I love. Listen to him. In the area of marriage and divorce and discipleship, put those things together, as Jesus does. Is it, Jesus, I'll listen to you, I'll entrust my life to you, I'll allow you to shape my thinking all of my life, Or will I make it a taboo area, just too personal, too much? And will I do away with Jesus? Jesus knows our hearts. He's very realistic, isn't he? Verse 5, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. There has to be a law, doesn't there, to deal with human sin. There has to be a law to deal with hard-heartedness. There has to be a law to provide and protect when human beings do what we're wont to do and don't obey the commands of God to protect the innocent party here 
in broken marriages. But of course, as we come to the meat of Jesus' teaching here, that was never God's best plan, was it? Have a look at verse 6. Here's the meat of Jesus' message. Jesus lays out God's creational, foundational purpose for marriage. And here's my summary of what he says in verses, well, 6 to 9, really. Jesus says marriage is a good, God-given union between man and woman that should not be broken. Can you see that from verse 6? But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Jesus is quoting from Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning of the Bible. Verse 27. And then, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. He's quoting there from chapter 2. Again, creation. Affirming God's design, God's plan from the very beginning. Incidentally, of course, the bit of Moses that the Pharisees didn't want to go to because Moses wrote Genesis as well as Deuteronomy, but they chose to go there. What are we permitted to do? Here is the creational ordinance, the thing we're supposed to do. And they didn't want to go there. This is how God has set up his world. Notice verse 6, God makes us male and female. There just are two distinct, biologically different kinds of human beings. And marriage brings together one man and one woman, one male and one female. And then notice it's a public and permanent bond between one man and one woman. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, the leaving and cleaving, and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. There's a public transfer of loyalty, isn't there? From previous family unit to the new one. The one flesh, special relationship, bound together in personal, loving commitment, of which, of course, sexual union is but one part, albeit an important one. But I think perhaps even more significant than all of that, if I could possibly say that, is that marriage is not just our doing, it is God's doing. You see that in verse 8 into verse 9. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, what God has joined together, let not man, let not humanity, separate. So whether a marriage takes place in a church building or a registry office or on the beach or on the center circle of a football ground, whether the people are involved are Christians or not, it's never a mere human contract that two people have just decided will happen. It's something that God has done. It's something that God has joined together and united. And as I, Richard, anyone else who has witnessed a wedding will say or hear, it's in the prayer book, isn't it? The Anglican prayer book. What God has joined together, verse 9, let no one put asunder, let no man separate. This is a union, isn't it, that is not so easily dissolved. I, I, I toyed with the idea of bringing up kind of two pieces of tissue paper cut out in the shape of a man and a woman, and, and then, you know, you, you'd 
I'm just not good enough at craft to pull it off. I'd get it wrong, probably. But basically, the, the idea is that you can imagine two very you know, fragile you know, people, broken people, get, getting together and being sort of stuck together with Pritt stick. And you imagine trying then to pull that apart so that the two come out unscathed. It just doesn't happen, does it? You, some of you know this from, from difficult experience. Bits are left on one another because divorce undoes, does violence to God's work and it does great harm to us. It does great harm, especially, of course, to any children who are the product of the marriage. You you know this. It's It's a reality. And I can say that while not every divorce might be in itself sinful, we'll see that, it's always the product of sin and it's always a tragedy, always a tragedy. So what's the key thing that Jesus wants us to see here? Well, it's that marriage is not a temporary, man-made, take-it-or-leave-it thing. It's God-given. And it's God-defined. And that's really important, isn't it, to hold on to in a world where cohabitation and divorce are common and marriage itself is being molded and, and changed. The Bible says Jesus insists that marriage is god given and God-defined. So Jesus reaffirms here what the Bible has said all along about the place for sexual union, doesn't he? Exclusively in the marriage of one man and one woman, not premarital, not extramarital, not between people of the same sex, but in this one God-given, God-defined relationship. Indeed, it is simply impossible, therefore, for a society or a state to decide that it will redefine marriage as it wants to. Because remember, marriage is not a human thing. It is a God thing. Create creatures, not even the church, can do what only the creator can do. And I know that that is a controversial, even unacceptable thing to say in Britain today. That even where our laws of the land permit it, that two people of the same sex might exchange vows together. The one thing that they are never is married. Because it's just an impossibility. Because they can't ever be one flesh in the way that God intends. They're not joined by God. And we must allow God and God alone, the creator, not the creatures, to define reality and define marriage in his world. And we should mourn, shouldn't we, and grieve that for long as we both shall live has become so often for as long as we both shall love. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously and wonderfully said, it's not the love that sustains a marriage, it's the marriage that sustains the love. Or from better for worse has become if it gets any worse, I'll look for something better. Follow your heart. Follow your love. Do what serves your happiness. If it's not serving those things, do away with whatever it is that's getting in your way. That is what Hollywood tells us. That is what celebrities sadly so often model and agony ants advise. As if, I don't know, marriage were a bit like buying a car. If you started noticing a few faults and a nicer model has caught your eye, trade it in, get something new. Marriage is only a bit of paper, we hear. A 
and so is divorce. But Jesus says, no, we should never want that. We should never see it as a convenient get-out clause. We, can never, we should never be thinking, well, if it doesn't work out, there's always divorce. We should never intend for it, and we must never, ever celebrate it. It brought me to tears when I read of someone who had held a party for their anniversary. Particularly when you see that there's, as so often in Mark's Gospel, a second conversation that takes place after the crowd have dispersed between Jesus and his disciples. Do you see that in verse 10? When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this, and he answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. That is called laying it on the line, I suspect, isn't it? Stark and clear that to divorce and remarry is to commit adultery. Now, there is a parallel passage in Matthew's Gospel which gives an exception to this. And we will come to that in just a moment. But let's just feel, in the context of Mark's Gospel, the force of those words of Jesus. You know how in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes adultery and he says, looking at another person lustfully is committing adultery. Or he talks about murder and he says, hating your brother is murder. It's like he's ramping it up here, isn't he? He's saying that to, 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 to divorce and then to remarry is committing uh, adultery. I think his point here, because he, as I say elsewhere, he does give an exception, but the point here in the context is surely this, that no man-made illegitimate divorce paper can break what God has joined together. Just because the state says someone is divorced doesn't necessarily mean that they are in the eyes of God. And so in its starkest terms, as you marry again and sleep with the second person, you commit adultery because before God, your first marriage bond still stands. Except, when we look to Matthew Chapter 19, verse 9, the parallel passage in Matthew's Gospel where we read this. Again, the words of Jesus. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. So there is this sexual serious misconduct, this adultery, and it is the simplest way to see it, which is so serious and which so cuts through the heart of a marriage that in God's eyes it is permissible, but not obligatory, but permissible for the innocent party if they're unable to reconcile to divorce their unfaithful spouse and if the occasion arises to marry another. That's the one very clearly legitimate ground for divorce that I find in, in Scripture. Again, they're Jesus' words. There is also a passage in 1 Corinthians 7 where the Apostle Paul appears to say that if you are a Christian and you have a husband or wife that is not a Christian and they decide that they are going to walk out, desert, abandon you, and I think this is where perhaps discussions about domestic abuse and so on might come in, that actually that might be tantamount to abandonment and again you may be free to remarry. Certainly you should bear no guilt for being the victim of such neglect such abuse because you've been sinned against. 
So there is this one clear uh, exception to Jesus' words here in Mark, and there may be uh, another one. But notice what's not there. Notice what does not constitute a legitimate biblical ground permission for divorce. Not, we just drifted apart. Not, I just didn't love him or her anymore. Not, oh, we were just young and we just made a foolish decision. We didn't know what we were doing. They may all be true. But they don't mount the grounds for divorce in the Bible. I follow, I think, what is Jesus' logic in Matthew 19, that if the divorce in a particular case is biblically permissible, then remarriage in that significant case would also be biblically permissible. But if the divorce is not permissible, then neither is remarriage. But let's not lose sight of what Jesus says in Mark. It's really clear, isn't it? The simple application of Jesus' teaching here on divorce is this. Don't do it. Don't do it. And that is the meat of Jesus' message this morning. Jesus says that marriage is good. It is a God-given union between man and woman that should not be broken. It's not to be idolized, because the only eternal marriage union, as we know, is between Jesus and his believing people, his church. So, if you're single, or if you're deciding to live a celibate life for whatever reason, perhaps because you are same-sex attracted. You do not lack, as uh, uh, Richard uh, hinted out at the beginning with those words about Jesus calling out who his family and friends are. You do not lack family in the people of God. He says that actually at the end of chapter 10 here uh, as well. But as we look here, the question, as with every deep demand that Jesus makes on our lives, is will we deny ourselves? Will we entrust ourselves to him even when his words are deeply demanding? And will we listen to him? Will we live for him in a world that dances to a very, very different tune? So there's the main thing that Jesus is teaching for us this morning. He says that marriage is good. It is a God-given union between man and woman that should not be broken. But I want to finish by bringing together some strands here because it's inevitable, isn't it, that, that some of us will have felt the pain and betrayal of adultery, of abuse, and so on. You might even have committed some of these things, and you might still even feel ashamed. You might be in a marriage, and it might be very, very difficult. You might have that sort of horrible, I'll leave you if, hanging over all the time, breeding insecurity and fear and a sense of always being on trial to, to perform and to please. You may, as a child, have been passed from one parent to another. They may both have loved you, but were probably competing with one another half the time. You may have barely known one of your parents, maybe not at all, because of a family breakdown. It grieves me to see old people left to live by themselves, not because they've been widowed, but because they've been abandoned. We see lonely divorcees afraid to commit in relationships because they've been so badly burned. Hurt that refuses to heal. It's very personal, isn't it? The consequences are so painful sometimes. But Jesus does not want you to go away feeling condemned 
feeling stigmatized, feeling second class, but confident and joyfully able to trust in the Lord and to move forward. So three concluding comments to that end. The first one, let's all work at and pray for godly, faithful marriages. We are all sexual sinners in some way or another by Jesus' definition. Anyone who looks lustfully and so on. Don't let Hollywood, don't let celebrities, don't let the pull of our urges screw up our marriages or anyone else's. Let's do all we can not to even entertain thoughts or words or images that will lure us away from the commitment, the covenant that we have made. Let's guard what God has made so very, very carefully. And let's not take anything for granted. None of us are home and dry, because what we survived in one season, by God's grace of marriage, might be very different in the way it presents itself as a challenge in the next season. Marriage breakdown doesn't just happen to other people. I'm convicted about how easy it is to stop praying together. Have you got folk you can talk to? People are rooting for you if you're married and yours? Let's commit ourselves, all of us, to pray for, in the right sense, fight for faithful, godly marriages in our families, in our church, and beyond in our communities. Second, and this is probably what some of you need to hear the most. I think in a way we all need to hear this the most. Seek the grace Jesus offers you, whatever has happened. As I've said, we all live disordered lives in every area, including in the area of sexuality. Maybe you've committed adultery. Or maybe you realize that you perhaps got divorced for not entirely the right reasons. Or maybe you entered into an adulterous marriage. And remember, that includes all of us who have even looked at another lustfully. We're all adulterers. Where does it leave us, friends? Where does it leave us today? Where does it leave you? I'll tell you where it leaves you. And the visible word we're about to share gives you a hint. It leaves us at the foot of the cross. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. That's where Mark's gospel is heading. Jesus' death, resurrection, enthronement. It means that we can acknowledge our sin. We can repent of it. We can receive God's forgiveness. Even today, we can be restored in Christ. We can move forward in joyful service. Humanly speaking, you might find yourselves in very different, difficult circumstances. Some things may not ever really be able to be put right until the new creation that we sang about in the first hymn comes. But spiritually, we can be right with God today by grace, through faith in Christ. And let me say that whether it's guilt we feel or a sense of betrayal, none of it is unforgivable. What have we been seeing in the Gospel of Mark? And this might even cause you to forgive that, who, that person who has done those things to you and against you even. We're seeing that it is the poor, it's the lepers, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the adulterers, the sinners who flock to Jesus, never away from him, to him. So today, whether it's guilt you feel or a sense of betrayal, the best thing you can do, just like the children were answering when Richard was asking, is to, just to, come, to come press in on Jesus, to, to, to entrust yourself to him. His call and invitation 
to run to him because he has the, the authority, remember, to forgive sins. Because he came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. He is as compassionate as he is commanding. He loves you. He wants you and your allegiance today. And that marriage that's going to last forever between him, our great bridegroom, and us, his bride. Look to him for grace. He will never break any of his promises. He will, oh, there is grace sufficient for healing, for forgiveness, for forgiving those who've sinned against you and hurt you so deeply. There is grace sufficient to live for you now. Which brings me on to the final point. Know his grace to live as his soft-hearted servants. Verse 5, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote this law. Jesus has to deal with divorce at all because our hearts are hard. Will you go away today? Will I go away today saying, I won't have what you say, Jesus. It's too hard. I'll do my own thing. I'll live my own way. I'll get married, but I'll stick with seeking my own happiness and desires. If my spouse doesn't deliver, I'll ditch her. Or will I make sure she knows that the threat is hanging over the marriage all the time? You know, if you don't perform, if you don't live up to this, if you don't look this. And if, oh, you know, if it fails, I'll get divorced. I'll move on. I'll try and gain the whole world. And then we listen to Jesus' words on discipleship in Mark 8, and we hear him say, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? You can be hard-hearted all you like, but it won't work. You'll forfeit your soul. Or you can be, as Jesus is calling all of us to move forward with today, you can be a soft-hearted servant. Whatever your marital status, whatever's happened in the past, knowing the goodness of Jesus' word, experiencing his grace and compassion, softening your heart, you humbly follow him. You deny yourself and your desires. You give yourself in glad, joyful, faithful service to others. If you're married in absolute faithful commitment to your spouse, to your family, you say, I will serve the Lord Jesus. And that will be very challenging indeed as you stick with it through thick and thin. But you know, as you stick with those relationships, as you stick with the Lord Jesus' words, he will smile. And on the day you meet him face to face, you will know his approval. Because what have we been learning in Mark chapters 8 to 10? That whoever comes to Christ, whoever seeks mercy, whoever gives up their rights and loses their life in his service, will save it. Let's be quiet for a moment. Our Father, we are all broken as we hear these words. And yet, Jesus is sufficient. His grace is enough. Lord, heal our hurt. Help us to come to you with our guilt, with our bitterness, with our sense of betrayal. And as we see you in all your goodness, and as we see the extent of your love for us, and as we share it in a few moments in the bread and the wine, would you make that even more clear to us? Lord, would we press in in trust, love, and service 
of our Lord and Saviour. By your Spirit, take these words, make them real to our hearts, help us to obey them, help us to entrust to one another things that we're finding really difficult, not to leave it here. And would we make ourselves available, Lord Jesus, to help mutually minister to one another in the grace and the love that you've shown us today in this word. For your glory's sake. Amen.